Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Number 9 has been out on the road again and this time we teamed up with the Steinbeck Festival hosted by our friends at the Roe Valley Arts Centre in Limavady. We're no strangers to Limavady of course so it was a joy to be back. The theme was Journey and there are three stories for you on this podcast from that brilliant evening. The car starts to make a noise, it loses power and then just stops just past the literal middle of nowhere in the dark. The police chose a warning over a fine before taking it upon themselves to escort us home, so we hit the road again. It was quite an event. She had a tattoo in her arm and she told me she liked to fight. She said, sometimes I like to hurt people. So get ready for a road trip from hell with a chaperone, a road trip from hell with a future husband, and a road trip that really could have come straight from a Steinbeck novel. So... Let's start the journey, and what could be more appropriate than a story told by someone with an American accent? Here's McCall Gilfillan. It's the mid-90s, spring break, my first year of the University of Washington, and my grandfather decides to give me Grandma's old car, a Mercury Topaz. I'll fly down from Seattle to Phoenix to collect the car, then drive it home. The most direct route back to Arizona involves a six-hour drive straight west, from Phoenix across the Mojave Desert to L.A., then another 1,150 miles through California and Oregon, about 18 hours. Imagine driving from Belfast to Madrid. The plan is that I'll bring my boyfriend to share the driving, and we'll do it over a couple of days. My relatively conservative parents want me to bring a third person as a chaperone, because they don't approve of me taking overnight trips with boyfriend, even though we live at university quite unchaperoned the rest of the time. So a plane ticket is purchased for my baby brother, who is about to turn 16. This will keep things respectable. To be fair, little brother is incredibly mechanical, so he's also sent in case there's a bit of car trouble, since boyfriend and I know nothing about cars. Day one. We get a four-hour flight down on a Friday morning, expecting to return Sunday night. Grandpa shows us the car in detail, how to adjust the seats, the safety kit in the boot, the insurance documents. He's changed the oil and cleaned the car inside out. It looks great. Just as we're leaving, he says, oh, there's one little thing. The fuel gauge, it's broken. So you need to keep track of the odometer. She should get 350 miles to the tank, so just set that to zero every time you refuel. That'll keep you right. Off we head, full of excitement. We fill the petrol tank, set the odometer to zero, and start driving, with no idea of the farce ahead. We head across the desert, headed for Palm Springs. The first problem comes at around 9 p.m., shortly after we pass the town of Desert Center. The car starts to make a noise. It loses power and then just stops, just past the literal middle of nowhere in the dark. This is the mid-90s. Mobile phones barely exist. Pagers are cool. We are not cool enough to have pagers. Hazard lights go on. Boyfriend and little brother push the car to the shoulder. We look under the bonnet. 
nothing smoking or steaming or looking amiss. We remember what Grandpa said about the odometer, but we've only driven about 200 miles. Nonetheless, little brother is quite sure that we have run out of fuel. The last exit was five miles back. We start to walk. We are wearing sandals and shorts because we are three kids, not planning on a night hike in the desert with snakes and scorpions and coyotes. There is virtually no passing traffic, yet we decide to try hitchhiking as five miles is a long way to walk in sandals at night in the desert. After about a mile, a couple stops for us. They take us back to Desert Center to buy a petrol canister, fill it with fuel, and then drive us all the way back to our car. We are so thankful. Sure enough, after a splash of petrol, the car starts. We drive back to Desert Center, fill her up, and reset the odometer to zero. Now realizing the tank's range is more like 200 miles, not 350. We find a single remaining room at a sketchy motel somewhere near Palm Strings by midnight. They do not give a flying fig about our respectable chaperoned arrangements. Day two, we begin heading north. Now a mixture of excitement tinged with mild concern. This is an adventure, and we are going to keep our sense of humor. Approaching L.A., the car begins to make an asthmatic, wheezing sort of noise. We ignore it. On the main highway that rings L.A., the car starts smoking. Red warning lights flash. So we coast down the next exit ramp and pull into a petrol garage. The owner knows a mechanic. We will need a tow. Do we have a roadside assistance? No, we do not. It is clear that he thinks we're idiots, but he stays professional. We do have an emergency credit card that my parents handed me at the airport. This will be pulled out often by the time we get home. After several hours of waiting for the tow truck and parts, we are again back on the road with a new fan belt. We make it a few more hours to near Bakersfield and grace another dodgy motel with our chaperoned presence. Day three, we continue north, a bit distanced from reality, which is good because this day has a lot of reality to dish out. We manage six hours before we next break down, somewhere near a town called Hooker, California. We begin climbing up a mountain pass, having just filled up with petrol. We now do this every 150 miles. A tire blows. That's fine. Little brother can change a tire. We start driving on the spare. A couple of miles later, another tire blows. We all get out and examine the tires carefully. We see they are all cracked like old leather left out to dry in the hot sun. It finally occurs to us that this is exactly what has happened to this car. We use a can of emergency tire coating spray, and it works for about five miles. We have three of these cans, and we use them all to get to the next service station, which fortunately sells tires. Once again, the garage owner clearly thinks we're idiots, but manages not to laugh at us out loud. We buy four new tires and a spare with the emergency credit card. We continue north. Soon the car adds a new sound to its repertoire, a noise something like moo. Engine temperature is in the danger zone. Little brother explains that air conditioning adds to the strain on an engine, so to cool the motor, we need to turn on the heater. 
It's about 30 degrees outside. We've learned that little brother does know his stuff, so we open the windows, turn the heater on full blast, and sure enough, the engine cools enough for us to climb slowly over the mountain pass, mooing all the way. Somewhere around Mount Shasta, we pull into a little town for petrol. It's after 6 p.m. Everything is closed, including the one petrol station. However, there's a house behind it that looks like it's connected, so maybe someone will open up for us. We cannot see anyone about, so boyfriend lifts the petrol nozzle from its cradle, hoping that it might trigger some sort of notification in the office. An SUV speeds up. The driver aggressively demands to know what we think we are doing, because it looks like we are trying to steal fuel. He tells us to get our asses out of town, or he will ring the local police. At this stage, I think this could really only be helpful, but boyfriend loses the head and decides to leave. The man in the SUV follows us all the way to the town border. We have actually been run out of town in very, very slow motion. We coast on fumes into the next town called, wait for it, Weed. Everything is closed. The car runs out of petrol. Boyfriend and little brother push it to the side of the road. We just sleep in it on Sunday night. We are not enthralled with small-town America at this stage. Day four begins with another walk to a fuel station. We fill the gallon tank, carry it back to the car, head north. Our emotions have skipped straight past despair and onto giddy. The car won't accelerate beyond 50 miles an hour. It's both wheezing and mooing nearly all the time. We just drive and laugh. The nine-hour drive home takes 14 hours. We stop every 100 miles for fuel, and we drive no more than 45 miles an hour. The car limps up to my parents' house late Monday night, smelling hot, sounding like a cow having an asthma attack. We have spent well over $1,500 on the emergency credit card, which is probably three times the value of the car. It turns out cars parked in a garage in 40-degree heat for five years are not necessarily roadworthy, even if they were when you put them in there. I've titled this story, MOTs are a good thing. The U.S. should consider implementing them. Oh, McCall, thank you so much. That was great. It makes the daily commute sound heavenly. See you soon, I hope. And if you think you can follow in McCall's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch at 10by9.com or contact us through our social media channels, the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, on to our next story, and it's from a first-timer. Here's Grace Hurrell. I had just finished night shift, climbed seven flights of stairs to number nine, crawled into my bed and drifted off while going over my mental checklist. The mental checklist had become an important part of my bedtime routine. Rings, away invitations, home invitations, big dress, small dress, big cake, small cake, fancy away chair covers, fancy home chair covers, small flowers, big flowers, and so on. The wedding was fast approaching. It was going to be a small affair in Gretna Green to keep costs down but gradually evolved into a small wedding in Gretna Green and an epic party back at home, which put costs straight back up. 
So my bedtime routine of completing the ever-growing mental checklist and making what seemed to be hugely important decisions, such as a harpist throughout the service or a piper before and after, became reasonably complicated, very time-consuming, and pretty stressful, actually. The piper got the cut. Thirteen of us being escorted around Gretna Green with bagpipes playing seemed, well, unnecessary, and I was working on a budget after all. By the time of the wedding, the enormous checklist and the hugely important decisions were actually sleep-depriving, but on this occasion, the small list for away and the big list for home was complete, and I had drifted off. I thought I heard noises, voices, laughter, footsteps, doors opening, doors closing, that kind of thing. It was quite confusing. I was asleep. The noises were getting closer and becoming louder. I heard a key in my front door. I heard people in my hallway. I heard an enthusiastic male voice say, Here, does Grace sleep her clothes on? I woke up. My bedroom door forcefully opened. A pile of very loud, very energetic, and very excited people burst in. That dodgy dream quickly came true. Thank goodness I do sleep her clothes on, because this was happening. I opened my eyes to a fair percentage of the population of Antrim and surrounding areas in my bedroom, and thank goodness I had decided against the liquid gold collagen face mask that morning. My friends were there, my fiancé's friends, their kids, their friends' kids. It was quite an event. There's a gap between being in bed and being manhandled out of the front door, but as I reluctantly exited the building, not on foot and not by choice, I do clearly remember thinking to myself, bollocks. <laughs> my fiancé had already been captured, placed on a bale of shavings and securely fastened with cable ties to the inside of a small builder's trailer, which was hitched up to a large silver jeep. I knew what was happening, and I hadn't included being prepared for a pre-wedding doing in my mental checklist, which I thought covered everything. There was a spare bale of shavings in the trailer. It was for me. I, too, was positioned on a bale and securely fastened with cable ties to the inside of the builder's trailer. The journey began. Vehicles left in convoy. We were Randallstown bound. The large silver jeep and the small builder's trailer containing us led the way. Cars beeped, lights flashed, pedestrians cheered. We must have been the talk of Antrim and Randallstown. Not much happens around there. The large silver jeep pulled up and parked on the corner of the main street. All traffic in Randallstown must pass the corner of the main street. You could argue it's the most popular spot in Randallstown, actually. The Christmas tree used to go there, but unluckily for us, it was mid-January, and it had been taken down. It was our turn to take the stage on the corner of the main street in Randallstown on this particularly cold... January morning in 2016, after a long night shift, seven flights of stairs, and a mid-morning ambush. The plotters had hit macro hard beforehand and spent a small fortune on a broad selection of five-litre bottles of condiments and flour. A young girl faced me. We'll call her Maeve, because that's her name. (laughs) She (laughs) She appeared eager. She was armed with flour and sauce. She looked at me. She smiled. I looked at her. I didn't smile. I braced myself and thought, Jesus Christ, where's my inhaler? (laughs) I'm an asthmatic. My asthma is generally unpredictable, but one thing I can always predict is if I don't know where my inhaler is, I will need it. In hindsight, this should have been prioritized on my mental checklist that I thought covered everything, but I was learning day by day that clearly it didn't. Maeve went for it. She was living her best life at our expense. She transformed into a 12-year-old toddler that had gained access to a, restric- to a restricted kitchen cupboard. And all of this was happening on the corner of the main street in Randallstown for passers-by in a growing crowd to see. The flour clouded the sky. There was tomato ketchup, more flour. 
Brine sauce, more flour, mustard, more flour, more tomato ketchup, and an ice cream cone placed carefully and neatly upside down on our heads as a finishing touch. I was delighted when the ammunition ran out. But now, don't get me wrong, there, was others, there were others involved, but the sheer joy on Maeve's sweet face was lathering us, and that smell of all the mixed sauces is something I will never forget. When her turn comes, I'll be delighted to assist. Revenge is sweet. The trip home was somewhat eventful. Still secured to the builder's trailer with 100% unbreakable cable ties, and on our bales of shavings, we left the main street in Randallstown. My fiancé, um, Cahill, and I had no words following the attack. Traumatised, we just shivered and clasped a hand which was, just, which was secured just in reach of each other's. The cry dispersed, the large silver jeep started up, and we were towed the scenic route home. After the main event, it crossed my mind that this couldn't be a completely legal way to travel, and with that thought, the pedal hit the metal and things sped up. Perhaps the driver had come to the same realisation and was trying to get us back before the police saw us. Maybe a good song came on and he got carried away. I don't know. But what I do know is, in the distance and gaining on this dodgy-looking outfit were blue lights and sirens. <laughs> yes, they were after us. Yes, they caught up. And yes, they stopped us. The officer got out. What's this? He asked as if he didn't know. But I thought to myself, good question, actually. What the hell is this? I'm just off a long night shift. I should be in my bed. The driver explained that the wedding is soon, so obviously this is their doing. I was tired, I was cold, and the fun was over. I didn't need to be firmly attached to a builder's trailer on the side of a road like this while the police dealt with the driver. But, in an unusual turn of events, the kind officer explained to the driver that excessively exceeding the speed limit and driving about with people held hostage in a builder's trailer is not okay. But on this occasion, I assume he took pity on the Baltic future bride and groom who were covered in utter shite. The police chose a warning over a fine before taking it upon themselves to escort us home, so we hit the road again. Large silver jeep, builder's trailer, bride and groom-to-be, PS and I, and blue lights on. It was quite an event. We must have been the talk of Antrim and Randallstein, because not much happens around there. In the following weeks, the stench lingered on all seven flights of stairs leading to number nine. The following months saw a small wedding in Gretna Green to keep costs down, and an epic party at home, which definitely did put the costs back up. In the following years, we moved from number nine and added two fabulous free-range children to our squad. We've just last week celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary, and the mental checklists are still going strong. However, every single time there is a ketchup request in my house, the smell still turns me and takes me on a journey straight down memory lane, which leads me to the corner of the main street in Randallstown on a cold January morning in 2016. No regrets. <laughs> Ah, uh, thanks so much, Grace. You gotta love rural traditions, especially since they banned human sacrifice. What a great story, and please come back soon. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but if you want to help with some of our costs, you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal. But as always, it's more important to us that you sit back, relax, and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week, and it's a gem. Here's Roy Arbuckle. On a cold, snowy December in 1982, I was travelling across America from Chicago to Portland, Oregon, with my bandmate Noel Lennon. 
We just spent a couple of days in the Black Hills of Dakota where we saw Mount Rushmore and the Crazy Horse Monument. That's sculpture by digger and dynamite. We had lunch in a cafe in nearby Keystone where we sat in a booth beside a wall plaque saying, Near this spot, Flyspeck Billy was shot with his own gun. Turning off Interstate 90, we cut across the northwest corner of Wyoming. Bad, bad icy roads, boring treeless landscape, little oil wells and bad smells. The weather closed in, so we stopped in Sheridan, another small town on the way. Forgettable. Onwards and upwards to Montana, the beautiful, and the Rocky Mountains. Next stop was at Wyola on the Crow Nation Reservation. Best breakfast since I left me ma. Fried eggs over easy on toast, Canadian bacon with maple syrup, orange juice, and a bottomless cup of coffee. Perfect. The roads were treacherous again. On and on through the big sky state. We had a very hairy drive across Bozeman Pass. It's 5,000 odd feet. That's Five times as high as Glen Sheen. Very icy, light snow, darkness falling, cars off the road, tension time. We made it into Bozeman and the comfort of the Camry Bar, where we met a local guy who guided us around. Bozeman is a college town with legal gambling in the bars. Very wild west. The bar had a card table with two women shuffling cards expertly playing solitaire and waiting for the action to begin. We played pool with a cowboy and sometime oil worker. Real cowboys are hard working farm hands on horses, not a bit like the movies. No John Wayne's here. There was a rodeo cowboy at the bar. Crazy, funny, drunk and stoned out of his saddle. Tiredness caught up. Maybe it was a mountain air and lack of oxygen, so we got a cheap motel and slept like the dead. In the morning, we bought snow chains for the Oldsmobile. It was compulsory to have them in the car and be ready to put them on if directed. We got them in a very interesting store selling ranch supplies. Everything for the cowboy and the modern ranch. Lovely people, very helpful. We were advised to have food, water, and sleeping bags inside the car, not in the boot. If the car broke down or slid off the road, it could be covered in snow very quickly, and no one would find your frozen body for days. Sobering. So it was Bozeman to Butte over Pipestone Pass, another thousand feet higher. There were wild turkeys and pheasants hanging out on the road. I suppose that Tarmac was warmer on their wee feet than the frozen field. Every night when it started to get dark, it would start snowing as well, so I had pulled the Oldsmobile off the highway to seek shelter wherever the road took us. This particular night, the road took us to Deer Lodge, Montana. We found a creaky old railway hotel to sleep for the night. Ancient plumbing, noisy pipes, uneven wooden floors. You got settled? Let's find a saloon. This is the Wild West, after all. Across the street, there it was, the Golden Nugget, a bar full of beer and woman. 
What more could a poor boy want? We had an expensive and bad meal badly served. The waitress just didn't want to be there. Couldn't blame her. The bar section had a band playing sort of rock, sort of top 40. They were okay. Noel split for bed and I played the poker machine for a while, losing eight or ten dollars. I was sitting at the bar drinking my last beer when I got into conversation with a small, slightly plump woman. She was maybe 25 or could be 35. She accosted me at the bar, told me I was beautiful, and that she wanted to take me home and make love. She also wanted me to buy her drinks, tequila and seven-up. She proceeded to tell me that she was the best stripper in Kansas City. Told me she had the best boobs in the world. Told me she had a lovely body. I must say I was intrigued. <laughs> she had a tattoo in her arm and she told me she liked to fight. And I, I believed her. She said, sometimes I like to hurt people, but mostly I just like to. It starts by that. Oh, says I. Turns out Deer Lodge is where the state prison for Montana is situated. And most of the women in the bar were the significant others of prisoners. I wondered what her boyfriend was on for. I had a little trouble getting away from her unscathed. First time I ever talked to a real motorcycle mama. Says I, uh, excuse me, must go to the bathroom. Call me a coward. Back in the safety of the Creaky Hotel, we laughed about it and slept and woke up early to hit the highway again. There were still a ways to go to Portland, Oregon. The next leg of the journey was the most spectacular yet, leaving Montana and heading up and up on Lookout Pass, crossing into Idaho, descending into the town of Wallace, the silver mining capital of the world. We had left Deer Lodge early in the icy morning, the bottom of the tires frozen flat for the first few bumpy yards. The weather was perfect, bright sun, blue sky, white snow, green and black frosted fir trees. I was driving on packed ice over the high pass. Locals drive by nonchalantly, me nervously. Trees crowding the road, watch for fallen rock. Steep, steep, steep. There was a new delight for the eyes around every corner. At the top of Lookout Pass, a two-foot-high crash barrier was all that separated travellers from a 14,000-foot drop. It was beautifully scary. We wound around Coeur d'Alene Lake. Just too pretty. In the town of Wallace, a woman drove out in front of us, skidding and swearing I missed her by inches. She didn't notice. I guess she'd been out all night and had just got out of some cowboy's bed. Around the corner, another drunk stepped out in front of us on the icy road. I got stopped in time. This was around 9 a.m. Seems people drink around here. There's still a ways to go to our destination. On and on through Idaho into Washington State, skirting Spokane. This part of Washington was very empty. High plains, no trees until the apple-growing area around Yakima, where we stopped for supper. We drove on Highway 97 through the Yakima Reservation and onwards towards the Cascades. 
which looked very much like the Black Hills of Dakota. We hit the Columbia River at Mary Hill. I wondered did someone from Glasgow name it. We drove along a river, making the crossing into Oregon at a place called the Dal. The last hundred miles were uneventful, and we got into Portland around 9.45 p.m., which was 15 minutes ahead of our ETA. Started looking for a bar to get a drink and a phone. Spotted. Ray's Ordinary Bar. That'll do us. An ordinary bar is what we need. We walked on right on time for the start of the drag show. <laughs> Compared by Vonda Cox. Might be ordinary for some folks, but the drag queens and the bartender were very nice to us. We had a beer and phoned our agent who gave us direction to his place. And we stayed up all night smoking and drinking and catching up. Next day was Sunday and we went exploring Portland. The Saturday market was open every day until Christmas. Lots of hippies selling their wares, pottery, woodwork, art, etc. Very arty, crafty. Very hippie, 60s. In a way, the 70s seemed to have passed these folks by, and that was fine by me. Oregon at that time was a good place to see what the world would have been like if the hippie philosophy had prevailed. I would guess peace and love and arts and crafts. Roy, thank you so much. What a trip and what an experience. And that woman with the tattoos will live in my nightmares for a long time. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 dates on our website, 10by9.com, including some special events. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10x9 and the 10x9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10x9 happen. The wonderful people of the Steinbeck Festival. The lovely people at the Roe Valley Arts Centre. Adam, Shona, Maureen and of course Esther. The wonderful audience and all our storytellers. But especially McCall Gilfillan, Grace Hurrell and Roy Arbuckle. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.